Welcome to our special edition of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Now for today, we are featuring a review of episodes one to five of season two. Our discussion will definitely contain spoilers, so you might want to watch the episodes first before listening to this podcast. As most of our listeners know, episodes one through five were the last in which Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts served as the Discovery showrunners and thus represented a particular vision for season two. So we decided this would be a good time to take a look at these episodes as a unit. So within this special podcast, um, we will provide an overview of the first five episodes and identify intentional changes to the show, seemingly in response to fan criticisms regarding perceived canon violations. And then we'll examine the common themes of Season 2. So Adele, let's first provide a brief recap of each one of the episodes with implications regarding Star Trek canon. Yeah, so Episode 1 is called Brother. And this fast-paced episode introduces us to Captain Christopher Pike and Commander Nan from the USS Enterprise, who become officers on the Discovery. We are also introduced to the overarching mystery for the season, that is the appearance of the being called the Red Angel, and... Seven red signals that are somehow connected to Michael Burnham's brother, Spock. Under the leadership of Pike, the crew is commissioned to learn what meaning, if any, do these phenomena have for the Federation, either benevolent, malevolent, or is it appropriate to ascribe any intentions to these sightings? So, implications to the canon. Okay, number one... The role of women. Women continue to be more present in this series than any previous Star Trek show to date. Of the nine regular bridge members, five of them are women. And of course, the most significant and still unduly controversial feature of Discovery is that it focuses on the life and adventures of Michael Burnham, an African-American woman who is not the captain of a ship. Moreover, she spent her formative years on Vulcan under the care of Ambassador Sarek's household. Now, we promise you, our listeners, that this will be the last time we bring this subject up. But it is something that we need to address. Without a doubt, actress Sonequa Martin-Green has proven herself capable of carrying this show. I think her performance both through season one and through the first five episodes is our evidence of that. She is, to her cast members, acknowledged as the lead, as well as the heart and soul of the Discovery team. One has to look at the Next Generation cast to find a more comparable, cohesive unit. This cast works well together. They have a very strong bond with one another, and that's evident not just in the show and how they work, but also in off-screen when you see them together. We also want to talk about the bridge crew. Now, these supporting players 
uh, cast as the bridge crew were reintroduced to viewers in episode one by the way of Captain Pike, who had them stand and provide their names and position. Thus far, uh, in season two, they have been provided more dialogue as well as more to do than appear in reaction shots. In episode two, Operations Officer Joanne Owasekun was even chosen to go on an, an away mission. Right. Another thing that we've seen that's been introduced more is aliens uh, in season two. They include a greater variety of non-humanoid-looking aliens serving aboard the Discovery. One of them, a bridge officer named Linus, is a Saurian, who we've learned has had six nasal passages that has caused issues when infected. We have no problem with the introduction of other alien species, but we hope that the production does not get carried away with the creation of so many that it more, resembles more an episode of Star Wars as opposed to Star Trek. Definitely. There's another course correction that we want to talk about, and that is while neither one of us had an issue with it, one of the major criticisms of season one concerned the depiction of Gabriel Lorca, who didn't appear to possess the virtuous attributes of the typical Starfleet captain. Of course, by the second half of the season, we learn why this was the case. However, for season two, the casting of a white male actor, Anson Mount, to embody the legendary Captain Christopher Pike was clearly done as an answer to Lorca, as well as those with an unwarranted issue with Burnham. Nevertheless, we believe Pike, as portrayed by Mount, is a welcome addition to the cast and a compliment to Burnham, who, deserve, who deservedly remains as the central focus of the show. In fact, I think they've done a great job of actually incorporating him into the show, and they have a very good working relationship, both Definitely. he and Burnham, and also Mount and Sonequa Martin-Green. That's so. right. Now we want to look at one of the things that was another major uh, concern from season one, comedy. With the Federation engulfed in a war and facing near annihilation, season one left very little opportunity for comedy that one would characteristically find from time to time in the original series, in Next Generation, in Voyager, in Deep Space Nine, all the other shows. However... Under a peacetime scenario, season two has provided the writers um, with more opportunities to include irony, humor, um, laughter, and in some cases, straight out slapstick. That's um, true. Even, even during times of tense action. For instance, in episode one, there was probably more than a few viewers who um, smiled, had a smile on their face with the demise of the now- it, the, the now dead know-it-all Lieutenant Connolly, who came over from the Enterprise with Pike and Nan. He was known for obnoxiously mansplaining everything he could on every rescue mission. That's and right. in fact, in the middle of his mansplaining, that's exactly when he was destroyed by a, a fly, uh, 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 a an asteroid, asteroid. asteroid yeah, that destroyed his ship. Also... We have the addition of comedian um, Tig Notaro, 
who allows moments of deadpan acerbic wit from her portrayal of engineer Jet Reno. And she's been a welcome addition, which oh, yeah. which which I have to admit, I wonder why she hasn't been incorporated more into the show, those first five episodes. Well, I, but I think it's kind of hard to explain how you could see more of her and we hadn't even seen the chief engineer Well, that's yet. true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> so we now want to turn our attention to episode two, which was the New Eden episode. A 200-year-old distress call near the site of one of the red signals brings uh, an away team from the discovery to the planet, to this planet inhabited by descendants of survivors saved from the ravages of Earth's World War III by the Red Angel. One of the members of the community of New Eden pleads with Pike to take them back to Earth but Pike refuses so not to violate General Order Number One, also known as the General the, the Prime Directive. The plot, devised more like a traditional standalone Star Trek episode, re- revived a much debated Starfleet uh, principle, uh, discussion of the Starfleet uh, principle that the officers are forbidden to interfere with the natural progress of a of a pre-warp culture, even at the expense of their own lives or the lives of their crew. The episode also heavily delved into the theme of faith, a topic we will take up following our episode review. In fact, we get a sense that um, Pike actually is a person of faith or has been exposed to Yes. Beforehand. So, so we'll talk about that a little bit. More. I understand. I understand. Mm-hmm. I want. I just wanted to emphasize that. <laughs> okay. So in episode three, point of light, we drop in on the Klingons. Point of light cleans up some of the plot threads left dangling regarding the fate of the Klingon Empire at the end of season one. In this episode, we learn the Klingon old boy network isn't fully ready to accept Laurel as challenge, as chancellor. In fact, um, the House of Kor remains a major critic to Laurel, nor have they seemed to have bought into the notion the 24 houses of the Empire should be reunited. So there's still those challenges as well. Mm-hmm. Laurel's access to a device that could destroy the homeworld of Konos remains as the most important factor in her ability to remain in control. Uh, also, on in this episode, Laurel continues to have strong feelings for Tyler that have gone mostly unrequited. Mm-hmm. In spite of the fact that she has hid the fact that her relationship with Vok produced a child, this gives Laurel now two vulnerabilities that her enemies can attack, forcing her to step down. And, however, Philippa Giorgio, now of Section 31 convinces Laurel that both of these are liabilities she can no longer afford. And so after staging their deaths, Laurel proclaims herself as the mother of the Klingon Empire. The baby is sent to grow up at a monastery while Tyler is recruited to join Section 31. So I don't know how they're going to do this, but I guess they're going to try to make sure that Tyler doesn't run into any Klingons. Because that's going to blow that whole scheme. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll We'll see see how they deal with that. 
another thing we want to talk about are the Klingon traditions. For the most part, the Klingons have been presented as a patriarchal society in which men served as chancellor, with the exception of Laurel and the Discovery Series and Ed Sitber, who assumed the office upon the death of her father, Gorkin, as seen in the film Star Trek Undiscovered Country. For the most part, um, in the series and in the films, Klingon women seeking political power had to manipulate events behind the scenes as exemplified or as famously exemplified by the Dura sisters in the Next Generations and Deep Space Nine series. If the Discovery writers adhere to established canon, we know Laurel's rule will end before the time of the original series. Also, according to tradition, this chancellor's, the chancellor's position tends to be relinquished upon the holder's death. So Laurel can only hope that during her reign, she can continue to uphold her principles and move the Klingons closer toward the vision of a united empire. Well, I think that what they're planning on is that with her taking on the title of Mother of the Empire, mm-hmm. she's no longer officially a chancellor. And so, I mean, she still has a position of authority, but it's there can be someone else who can be in that position, I, I suspect. Or it may stay unfilled until they find another male to take that over. No, I think she's definitely still the chancellor, I but th- I think they're saying that the the title of mother is even all is all encompassing mother uh is 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 inclusive it's 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 gonna to her that title will be more of a factor in trying to bring everybody together than a chancellor which seems more authoritative well we'll see yeah we'll see because i think a patriarchal society like the Klingons is not going to have a mother of the empire. Well, well we know her. that's going to be the case. Right, but, right, 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 right. right. Yeah. Okay. okay. Let's, move. Let's move on to talk about hair, hair, hair. So another thing that we saw added to the Klingons this season is hair. According to the Discovery showrunner, season one's Klingons supposedly shaved their heads during time of war. However, I mean, this is just a convenient justification concocted to address fan complaints. Uh, Production designer Neville Page originally came up with the bald Klingon look for the 2009 Star Trek film. At subsequent Star Trek conventions, Page would explain that Klingons are bald because of the heightened senses on the top of their heads, causing the race to evolve this way. Since Kurtzman was a co-creator of Discovery and an executive producer on the, on the bad robot-produced films, it was only natural that he would bring some talent to the CBS all-access all show. When Page and makeup artist Glenn Hedrick were hired on the production, Page contended that um, the series' show uh, co-creator, Brian Fuller, asked them to use similar designs for Discovery, which I think is, we can assess, is probably the original sin 
that they made. <laughs> Whatever reason you choose to believe, obviously the hair is back to stay. And apparently it grows super fast because it's, <laughs> they're all hairy now. Right, right. They have full heads They got of hair. full heads of hair. They got beards. They got mustaches. Um, since very little time passed between the end of the Federation Klingon War and the and this episode in which the Klingons are sporting full heads of hair. You know, and the other thing that they need to acknowledge is that the whole convention of hiding the identity of Vok and Tyler in season one caused them to actually require more prosthetics for the Klingons yes, yes. than they had even used in the films. Right. Because if you look at those films, yes, the, the, the Klingons are bald, but they don't have the heavy makeup right. uh, and, 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 and plastic and rubber over their faces that they show on the on Discovery. Yeah, it was definitely an overreach because yeah. they didn't need to do that. I mean, let's, let's think about Superman, for instance. Right. The only thing that's hiding Superman's identity a pair of glasses. Yeah, a pair of glasses. And we accept that. We don't go. We don't go to see a Superman film or look at one of the cartoons or the uh, or the or the uh, TV, TV series series and say, "Oh, I can't get into this because why would people know that's not Superman when yeah. they look at Clark Kent?" Well, that could have been the same way with um, with them dealing with Vok and Ash Tyler. Um, People figured it out pretty fast yeah. that that was what was going on. Right, right. And so it just seemed like all that makeup, all the prosthetics and so forth was just not needed. Yeah, I mean, hindsight being twenty twenty, that was uh, error in judgment because I think it led to them going overboard with the Klingons right. in, in design. Right. And it, it caused the problems with, you know, you being with projection, so you yes. couldn't you couldn't comprehend what they were saying most of the time, and it also had a way of getting in the way of people really connecting with those characters. That's right. I think they would have been more inclined to buy them bald if you could see more of the face as you are used to seeing. That's right. In other shows with the Klingons. So anyway. Well, and that also reminds me when you talked about. The how that got in the way of dialogue yes, was huge. that in season two, of course, they would they would now only start off with speaking some Klingon, and then they would change over into English, so that because um, that was another fan complaint is that fans had an issue with you know them sp- when, when they were when it was only Klingons around, right. they would only speak Klingon. Right. And so uh, some of the fans had an issue with that, and so they, they made that change again. And when Laurel talks to with Tyler, the um, they he even says to her, why do you speak you know, English to me? Mm-hmm. And so, again, we know why, because fans don't like it when it's just uh, exclusively Klingon. Right, right. So now we're going to look at episode four, Point of Light, uh, which it was... Uh, no, you mean an obol for Charon. Sh- right. I am sorry. Thanks for uh, correcting me. Uh, episode four, which is an obol for Charon. Uh, Here we have another standalone episode using a familiar Star Trek trope. The Discovery is immobilized, caught by some powerful, unknown, and seemingly unique alien force whose grip threatens the survival of the starship. 
After coming to the realization the entity is dying and looking for a way to safeguard its legacy, the discovery is freed once it takes on the responsibility as serving as a repository for the alien entity's life experiences covering over 100,000 years. The episode highlights a Star Trek axiom that just because an alien entity is unknown, that does not mean it is actually a threat. The key is first to learn what it needs. We have a feeling this principle foreshadows the resolution of the mystery of the red angel and the seven red signals. Also, the perceived terminal illness faced by Saru in this episode mirror, mirrors that of the entity. We'll discuss how that experience connects to the theme of family later in the podcast. So episode five, which we just saw last week, is the Saints of Imperfection. This contains three major course corrections in the series from season one. Teased over the first four episodes, the subplot featuring Tilly, Stamets, and the Mycelial Network finally takes center stage to deal with the controversial death of Dr. Hugh Cumbert. With the mix of scientific theory and a little bit of sleight of hand, Culbiter's <laughs> resur resurrected. Even though the outcome of bringing back Culbert is a welcome change, the explanation is still unsatisfying, at least to us. We, I know other people have found it very moving. To us, it's a little problematic. The move delighted many fans upset with the showrunners um, that ha that they had killed off half of the first gay couple to be regularly featured in a Star Trek series. So another course correction regards the spore drive, which seems to be losing its vi viability with each episode. Stamets continues to express disdain for his connection to the device. And there is some question whether or not the drive harms the mycelial network when activated. Another thing is, is that one of the conduits to the network was closed when Culber was transported back to the, to the Discovery. We know the spore drive does not survive into the era of the original series, so we believe soon the writers will find a way to get rid of this technology for good. Yeah, it sounds as if they're going to have to get rid of it um, for some very reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Playing a major role in this episode, the depiction of Section 31 also came under scrutiny by fans this season since the existence appears to be far more public than it has been betrayed in other Star Trek series and films. However, we believe this version of C Section 31 may be the result of changes made by the Federation following surviving a massively devastating war with the Klingons. At least, that's what we think the justification is going to be. Mm -hmm. The Federation is especially vulnerable during this period as it hurriedly attempts to rebuild its fleet and enlist, train, and staff its ships and star bases. We've seen senior staff, Star Trek officers, conspire with the Terran Emperor Giorgio and devise a plot to inflict genocide on the Klingons. The lofty ideas of the Federation might be seen as outdated in the current environment. Perhaps taking on a more visible presence 
during this period is seen as an opportunity to reassure those currently serving that there's an agency dedicated to identifying and dealing with potential threats before they can no longer be controlled. As Section 31 Director Leland's told Captain Pike, we do what we do so you can do what you do. In a lot of ways, when you see this, there's a, great, there's a direct connection to the response that this country had to 9-11. Yes, yes. And you see how with the Patriot Act and a number of mm-hmm. other things that we did where we actually curtailed civil rights for the sense of national security, that that response was to that event. And so in a sense, what you're seeing now, what we might be seeing with Section 31 is a greater adoption of them and their tactics because the same, same behaviors are being reflected in, in the show. We're not quite sure how much influence Admiral Cornwell will continue to have on Section 31. Previously, the uh, agency has been presented as a wholly autonomous from Starfleet. However, Leland has clearly acknowledged her authority, which is a change from how they have operated in other series. What, but what is her overall vision for the agency? What role does she feel it will play in a post-war era Starfleet? Still, although somewhat different than other versions we've seen, we are willing to give the writers a chance to show us where they are headed with this divergence from from canon. All right. Well, now let's uh, change gears a little bit and talk about reoccurring themes. Thus far, season two has focused heavily on three major themes interwoven through all of the first five episodes. Those things being family, faith, and the circle of life. Under the subject of family, the mutiny by Michael Burnham and wartime events of season one did not provide many opportunities for relationships to form and be maintained. There were the ill-fated romantic relationships such as the death of Dr. Colbert, which cut short the only long-term romantic relationship um, uh, with, among series regular, whether gay or straight. Right. Michael Burnham couldn't reconcile Tyler's alter identity as a Klingon who once I attempted to kill her. Right. So that broke up their, the relation or their budding relationship. Captain Lorca couldn't persuade Michael to return his affections, as did her Mirror Universe counterpart. And also, Laurel loved Volk, but could not sustain the relationship once his body was altered and his personality and experiences were subjugated to those of Ash Tyler. There were also strained relationships between crew members, in which Berna was often the focal point of distrust because of her, you know, uh, attempt at mutiny or what they call what they labeled as mutiny. So there was a strained relationship between the Discovery crew, the whole of Discovery crew and Burnham, between Saru and Burnham, between uh, Mira Connor and Burnham. Well, that was short-lived. That was short- she, kinda, <laughs> she, she took care of that. She took care of that problem. I don't think there was an issue with with Mira Connor for, for long. There, and and uh, strained relationships between Mira Giorgio and Burnham and Mira Lorca and Burnham. 
Only the Tilly Stamets discordant relationship appears to be a noted exception to the Burnham floor uh, formula. In contrast, during peacetime, family ties and friendships deepen and become more meaningful. So thinking that he is dying, Saru shares with Michael his innermost thoughts and identifies her as his sister in place of his biological sister, who he doubts he will ever see again. And this is and, th- and then and in this episode, this is the second time he's confided um, his most intimate feelings to her. Once the other time being um, um, in when they were on uh, Pavo. Right in season one. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Michael tearfully re- reciprocates these affections, and through this experience, learns she must try to reconcile differences with her own foster brother Spock, which has been an undercurrent in the entire series thus far. Mm-hmm. Although the gesture is short-lived, Tyler tells Laurel he is willing to raise their child together based on the memories of Vogue's affections for her that he can still access. Stamets and Tilly grow closer through their mutual work and affection and also intimacy. They are willing to confide in one another. That's right. Their, you know, their fears, their concerns. And when Tilly is abducted by the Jacep, it's Stamets is the one of the few people left on the Discovery who has the faith that she will be able, that they'll be able to retrieve her. And finally, um, Hugh Cubber is miraculously resurrected and is able to rejoin his lover, Stamets. And probably most significantly, under Pike's leadership, the Discovery crew becomes a family by choice, connected by the principles that he keeps um, quoting repeatedly. Starfleet is a promise. I give my life for you. You give your life for me. And nobody gets left behind. That's right. So ironically, it is the more traditional family unit that appears to be dysfunctional for those um, in the Sarek household. So, for for instance, Amanda feels she wrongly acquiesced to her husband's directive not to overtly display affection toward their son, Spock. Consequently, she surmises she is a reason Spock may not be able to display empathy for others. Michael is, is estranged from her brother due to something she said or did to him as they were children or when they were children. And then... When Michael confides Amanda about her treatment of Spot, her foster mother appears hurt by the confession and declares that she alone will continue to search for Spot. The exclusion hurts Burnham and makes her feel that she is no longer um, close to her foster mother. Yeah, the estrangement that occurs between Amanda and Michael is significant and it's clear. Oh yeah, it cuts deeply, yeah. you know, be, it, it, at least to uh, Michael. Right, and mm-hmm. I and I suspect it'll be playing out throughout the remainder of the the season. Mm-hmm. Next, we want to talk about faith since we brought this up um, quite a bit, and it's also a significant part of the way I think they're they are addressing um, some changes with the series. Mm-hmm. An avowed humanist. 
uh, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry personally believed organized religion would cease to exist by the 23rd century. Although a few references to religion appear in the original series for the next generation, Roddenberry and later um, executive producer Brandon Braga forbade any reference to religion, superstitions, mystical thinkings in the script. It was Deep Space Nine that was the first Star Trek series to delve into the subject of, of religion and faith in a more meaningful way. However, even then, there was a period during the seven, seven seasons when the showrunners seemed to vacillate between whether the prophets that, we, that the Bajorans worshipped were either wormhole aliens or actual gods. Mm-hmm. On the Discovery... While Captain Pike has yet to explicitly state he is a man of faith, in each episode he provides all the signs that this is indeed the case. Viewers learned that his father taught comparative religion, and uh, we know that Pike attended church with his cousin. Pike uses phrases such as Godspeed and specifically corrects Burnham when she refers to a church as a structure. He seems to be familiar with religious traditions and liturgy as evidence in the episode New Eden. Pike also appears to be open to the possibility of the red angel having divine qualities. Also in New Eden, Burnham appears to resist any suggestion of any spiritual connection related to the red angel. However, by the end of episode five, she questions that the conclusion as whether divine intervention could actually exist. As we have stated in the previous um, episodes of this podcast, both of Adele and I are Christians, and we applaud the willingness of the showrunners to depict at least one major character as a person of faith. Yes, we did feel it was a cop out to contend that the religion that emanated. In the, from the people on, in New Eden was a composite of all religions, even one that delved with witchcraft. However, we, feel, we believe that if it's the vision of Star Trek to be an inclusive universe, then all should be welcome, even people of faith. All right. And this, is, this actually has some standing, not just with Deep Space Nine, but also with the original series. Mm-hmm. It's clear that when you look at the performance of Nichelle Nichols as Uhura, that there is a faith system that she portrays. In, in At least how, a knowledge of a it. A knowledge and awareness of mm-hmm. it because in Bread and Circuses, she's the one who figures out that they are not talking about a sun god, meaning the um, 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 worshiping the sun, right. but they're actually talking about worshiping the son of God, which is Jesus. Jesus, right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I, I guess I want to add that, and, and I think those kind of references does come from the fact that Gene Roddenberry uh, did grow up in a Southern Baptist household. You know, by the time he was a teenager, he d- does become a humanist. He does question, and um, and he said that it wasn't that he did not believe in God. He just didn't believe in organized religion. He had an issue with organized religion. And he's a product of his times. He's a product of his times. When you really look at it, that's the case, you know. Right. 
Okay, so now we're going to turn to another uh, major theme, and that's the circle of life. We're not really talking about the Lion King, but but this is birth, life, death, and resurrection, which all found their way into the first five episodes. So, for instance, we learned about the birth of the son of Laurel and Volk. We also um, came to know the value of life as embraced by uh, Pike, as well as their willingness to risk their life to save the life of someone else. As far as death goes, we learned about the need of Saru and the alien entity to face death on their own terms, as well as the importance of leaving a legacy to mark one's existence. And then also, as far as resurrection, there was the resurrection of Hugh Colbert to remind us that nothing truly dies. It transforms and becomes a part of the universe in another form. And I think that's one of the main things that they're trying to get across in that in that action. Even though we can question how effectively they explain its right. occurrence, they do focus on the fact that nothing dies. Mm-hmm. That it's it's that we go through a process where we become something that's useful to life going forward. That's right. So there you have it. These five episodes attempt to redirect the show onto a path that would be more pleasing to many of the most vocal critics. Um, On that level, I believe that they were only partially successful. I mean, when where the tone shifts, cosmetic changes in makeup, and ship designs have been applauded, I'm less confident that the explanations given for Culber's return or Laurel's um, ascent to the status of mother of the Klingon Empire are completely satisfying. We'll, we'll see how that plays out, but I, I personally wonder if those have been effectively um, explained. The speed to which we go into these events was faster than I think plausible given the leaps of reason they ask us to take. After filming these first five episodes, the show took a break in production while changes were made in leadership, and what is not clear is how much of the tone, themes, and arcs of the remaining nine episodes will be the same or differ in some way under the leadership of new showrunner Alex Kurtzman and Heather Caden, which I think is going to be significant. I mean, I, we, we don't know how much they may have made slight changes in these first five mm-hmm. to make them fit. But we do know changes were made. Um, Definitely. And and I suspect that one of them might be the a more earlier introduction of Spock yes. into the storyline. So we could keep, we could quit teasing him out for so long. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we know that this next um, episode... Uh, episode six is going to be about Saru mm-hmm. and takes his. Takes us back to Kaminar. Takes us back to Kaminar, right? Uh, but uh, we feel that after that, they're going to get, they're going to heavily focus in on the Spock story and the Red Angels and the and the Seven Signals. Well, the rumor is that Episode Seven is will be the first introduction of Spock. And then we see Spock. That we see yeah. Spock. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we do have one bit of news to share with you, and that is that over the weekend, actress Mary Wiseman, who plays Tilly, married actor Noah uh, Averbach-Cotts 
this last weekend, and many of the Discovery cast members also attended the wedding. In New York. In New York. Now, so, some, some of them live there. Some of them live there, but, but, the, but, but, the but, but that's still something, you right, know, right, right, uh, right. because it's a, you, you would like to hope. Sometimes when you like a cast, you like to hope, oh, they're friends outside. Right, right. Uh, but, but these people really are friends yes. outside, yes. you know, of the show. Uh, so that's it for now. We'll soon be back with our review of episode six of season two entitled The Sound of Thunder, which, as we said before, is going to concentrate on Saru um, and they're going to go back to uh, his home world, uh, Kaminar, which he had been forbidden to go back to right. uh, by the Federation. But I think he now feels that there's a different purpose behind yes, him going yes. back. Now that he realizes that their, that what they live by is a manipulation. Yes. That they're being subjugated against their will right. by by a, a more powerful alien force. I think there's a responsibility that Starfleet has to come in and address. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. We've got we got a couple hours to find it out tonight. <laughs> right. But until then, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD, on Facebook at Facebook.com, Star Trek AOD, and at our website, Star Trek AOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and aspects of the show. Also, you can email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. We'd like to hear from you. We'd like to get some, maybe if you have any suggestions on things you'd like for us to focus on or examine, or maybe alterations to the show. But until then, live long and prosper.